Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Karenkov. And in this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Eric Jang. Eric is a research scientist on the robotics team at Google. His research focuses on answering whether big data and small algorithms can yield unprecedented capabilities in the domain of robotics, just like it has done in computer vision, translation, and speech before. Specifically, he focuses on robotic manipulation and self-supervised robotic learning, and some other things we'll get into. So thank you so much for joining us for this interview, Eric. Thanks, Andre, for having me here. And as always, to get going, uh, could you just describe to us how you got into interested in AI and then also how you got into research broadly and, and AI research? Sure, yeah. So I've been always interested in robots uh, from the time I was a little kid. Um, you know, I, I like the movies Iron Giant and Bicentennial Man and um, I Am Robot. Those are, those are you know, uh, very enjoyable to my childhood. And then in um, high school, I did like science fairs. So I, I kind of got, that was how I got my early exposure to research. Um, I started off doing biology stuff. And then, um, you know, I found out that biology was often very slow and a lot of kind of waiting around for things to happen. So doing stuff in the computer was more fun. And then that gradually shifted from high school through college to look at like computational neuroscience and then pivoting to machine learning and deep learning. Mm. So how was that pivot uh, from neuroscience to AI? Uh, what kind of motivated that? Yeah. So, so um, I started off in biology and like sort of thought about like what, what are the big questions in biology? And, um, mm -hmm. and you know, naturally one of the big questions in, in kind of biology is understanding like the, the mind. It's, it's one of the final frontiers of science in, in some regards um, of, of trying to understand like what makes us human and what, you know, why are we conscious and things like that. Um, and then potentially if you can simulate something like that, you could, you could uh, cure a lot of diseases. And it's also just kind of very sci-fi cool. Um, so I started off like in high school being very fascinated with, um, you know, ideas from Jeff Hawkins and just uh, also like, uh, you know, I, I volunteered at a neuromorphic uh, computing lab at Stanford where they were trying to build spiking neuron models of, of, um, in, in, in hardware. Um, mm -hmm. And I continued pursuing that in early in college, where I was kind of taking neuroscience classes and writing code to simulate the biophysics of neurons. Um, and then at some point, I sat down and did some of the napkin math around like just like how big of a system could we possibly simulate. And then it, it got a little bit depressing because I think in order to simulate like biophysics of neurons in real time, so that you can control some you know real robot in the real world, um, either you need this massive data center of compute, or you just can't simulate that that many neurons. Uh, even even with like you know increasing compute um, and stuff. So uh, and even at that time, like the capabilities of these spiking neuron simulators weren't weren't that impressive. Like you could do some simple things and simple computations, but nothing like what we were seeing in machine learning and artificial neural networks. And so I switched over to like the more kind of um, the function approximators that we could plausibly run in real time on robots. Yeah, yeah, AI being very loosely inspired by the brain, but. Yeah, we often use the word neurons, uh, or maybe sometimes we use neurons, often we use units, but 
the nice thing about them is they're like far, 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 far simpler. Every neuron is its own ridiculous, you know, mathematical equation versus we can build things with billions of parameters and it actually scales because of how, how simplified it is. Yeah. And then, so you switched over to being interested in AI and from there, how did you wind up going to Google robotics? Yeah. Um, so I tried a few different career options in college and I was, I'm broadly interested in many different topics and I still am today. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think computer animation and seeing like artificial characters being animated by, by software has always been very fascinating to me. So I pursued a little bit of animation in college. Um, and then uh, I'm also interested in things like financial markets and the kind of rationality of it all. Um, and then, uh, of course, like a you know, childhood dream of mine is just to work on things like AI. So in college, I was kind of ruminating on what I would work on and, um, you know, what my career would look like. And uh, I had the fortunate opportunity for to get interviewed by um, a host matched into the Google Robotics team when uh, Sergey Levin was, um, you know, looking for someone to continue some of the grasping work that he, he had started at, at Google. Mm, so this was uh, around maybe 2015, 2016? That's right. Yeah. So I joined in uh, mid-2016. And then mm -hmm. my first project at Google was... Um, continuing some of the grasping work uh, that, that was done the, the year prior. Mm, yeah, and that's really interesting because deep learning and reinforcement learning really, you know, has, has been around for a while, uh, but got popular again in 2013, 2012, and then kind of made its way to robotics around 2015, uh, at least like starting to get big. So you sort of <laughs> got in just as this whole area was getting big. And and if I understand correctly, you got into a team just as it was also growing and scaling up, right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, um, the, you know, I, I, I still really distinctly remember like my junior year in college seeing uh, Sergey Levin's um, postdoc talk at, um, I think it was uh, UW, where he was mm -hmm. giving his talk on guided policy search. And I remember seeing this video and of this like robot, you know, doing a variety of tasks, different different models, but like doing the same same algorithm, being trained to do a variety of tasks, like um, hanging things on a coat rack or stuffing something in a shoe tree. And unlike all the previous robot demos I've seen before, this was working like in real time, and it was like a neural network that was mapping raw sensors to torques. And I remember seeing this, and I was like, "Holy cow! This is this is like." this is the future and this is what I want to work on because it just intuitively felt right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and some of the early sort of end to end image to control stuff was, you know, Sergey Levin, uh, Chelsea Finn, um, around that time. So yeah, definitely a time to get excited. I remember seeing the DDPG continuous control stuff, you know, RL was all Atari and, you know, these discrete things. Mm -hmm. And it blew my mind a bit that you could actually get to continuous control, um, at that point. Yeah. And the speed of it too is, is, is what makes it. Really yeah. Awesome. So yeah. Um, kind of how, how was the process of joining? Uh, did you, you know, get your hands dirty and build a bunch of robots, uh, or yeah. What, what was uh, going on early on? Right. So, uh, around 2016, that was, I think the Google robotics team had been around for, um, about a year. And that, that's the time when they were starting to ramp up hiring and try to get more people working on research problems in robotics. So I was very fortunate to um, get my, my foot in the door then and for the you know people, the nice folks at Google to take a, a chance on me who, who basically didn't have any real deep learning experience besides some you know university projects. Um, 
So the, the first thing I was working on was like a um, extension of a grasping system that had been built by Sergei, Alex Rzewski, Peter Pastor, and Deirdre Quillen. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I can go a little bit into describing like what the system was. So this was a, um, a group of like in-house developed cable-driven robotic arms with uh, attached to some um, RGB sensor. So it's just a monocular RGB sensor attached to a robot arm. And there was, there was a, uh, and then the arm is placed in front of like a tray of toys and small graspable objects. And they had, I think like eight or so of these robots. I could, I could be misremembering something between eight to 13 different robots. Mm-hmm. Um, they were always like breaking and going offline. So effectively somewhere between eight and 13, I think. And the idea was to use like a, sc- a large scale data collection effort where the robots in a unsupervised way just you know rummage around the bin and sometimes they accidentally pick up objects. You can implement some simple image computer vision heuristics to predict whether um, a robot accidentally picked up an object. And then you take the resulting um, transitions that it executed and use that to train a network that predicts whether these actions are going to result in a success or a failed grasp. So it's mm-hmm. like, you, you know, there's a the simple data collection procedure where you have some actions, some images, and then you, you train a network that looks at images and the actions and predicts, uh, is this a good grasp or not? And there's some assumptions that make it, um, that you know, transform it into the sort of a basic supervised learning problem as opposed to a more classically, at least today we would understand it as like more of a sequential RL type problem, but, you know, in, in 20. 15 and 2016, it was still a supervised learning. Um, and so they collect a lot of data this way and are able to learn grasping without any kind of reward engineering and just sort of autonomously, like robots can figure out how to pick up objects by themselves, which is a, a very big breakthrough for this kind of end-to-end vision of um, you know robots and deep learning put together. Yeah, yeah. Famously, I think it's often called the robot farm. The arm farm. Yeah, we are informed. Yeah, and amusingly, I think it got started partially because um, some part of Google uh, we were just going to discard these robots or something, and so <laughs> they were sort of donated, and then you know uh, this whole thing got started. That's what I've heard as well. It was a little bit before my time, but yeah, that's yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny. So the um, the pro- the first project that I was brought on to help with was an extension to this project where um, we were going to try to get the robots not just to pick up any object, which is, you know, requires some generalization and such, but we want to actually pick up specific objects because that's what makes it a little bit more of a useful system. And it also requires a little bit more intelligence uh, from the kind of machine learning perspective to understand like, you know, where to go some- to get something and how to perhaps even like singulate something so you can pick it up. Um, mm-hmm. So the extension was to like, you know, we have 21 classes or so and then condition on the object class um, and the, the bin of objects that you're seeing get the model to pick up the right object. Yeah, yeah. So this is the end-to-end learning of semantic grasping. And it is pretty notable, I think, because there's a lot of work on grasping. It's one of the sort of fundamental or, or very popular problems in robotics. Um, but often it is this sort of unconditioned grasping where you just pick up any object from a bin. Uh, and you, you could imagine that sometimes you might want to pick out something specific. So this is, I think, one of the sort of early works or, uh, yeah, one of the not too many works addressing it. Uh, yeah, and what was kind of the main tweak or, or step forward you made from sort of the existing system to towards this uh, approach? Yeah, so I would say like this was my first 
real research project that I, that I had worked on. Um, um, because like, you know, in college, I kind of just did my own class projects, but this was the first real project where I had like uh, mentorship from, um, the people who started the project, like for example, Sergey and Sudendra, um, and Peter. And, uh, so it was more like they had this existing project that was ongoing and just getting started and it wasn't really working. And I was brought on to kind of just, you know, make it work. And so for that project, I took that system and then like started trying to make it work. And then the basic kind of architecture that I had inherited when I joined was this idea that, um, you know, you have this uh, network that takes in an action and an image and it predicts whether it's going to succeed at grasping any object or not. And, you know, that's the prior arm farm work. Um, and then the, the, the extension to this is that we're going to train a model that takes in the same inputs and predicts what class of object you're going to pick up uh, conditioned on a successful grasp. So crucially, this model is going to output like class probabilities, much like an image classifier, but um, it'll be agnostic to whether like the grasp is good or not. And so the idea is like, if you have a model that can predict the kind of geometric spatial stuff around whether an object is going to be grasped, but let's say probability of object being grasped conditioned on image and, and action, and you multiply that by another conditional probability distribution, which is like probability of some image class uh, condition on successful grasp and also um, the image and also the action. Then the joint probability density that you arrive at is the probability that you pick up the correct object. If you mm -hmm. assume that you know picking up the object and the um, the success, like the the class success, is independent. Um, yeah, so, so that's the kind of formulation that we set up. And uh, it turns out that this is, uh, this is much trickier, like when you actually try to make it work. Um, and perhaps, you know, there's a recent paper that's quite related to this, this idea that we end up implementing, um, which is the clipboard paper that was featured in Coral and a lot of people are pretty excited about. But it's essentially a very similar idea, right? You have a part of, you have one model that performs the prediction of like this, the, the task itself that's, divorced from the semantics and class probabilities. And then you have another stream that just reasons only about the class probabilities, but doesn't know about the, um, the, the kind of geometry of the task. And yeah, so the basic kind of intuition uh, for, so you predict the probability of grasping something, then you predict the probability of what you grasp. And the hope is if you just evaluate a bunch of actions, one of them would get good results for both grasping something and grasping what you want. Is that kind of the main idea? That's exactly right. That's the main idea. So yeah, you, you jumped on, you, you tried to work on it, I guess, aside from the conceptual thing. Um, yeah. How did you find doing this first kind of research project? Uh, <laughs> how long did it take? How much of a, uh, you know, pain was it? <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely a tough project because I think, you know, anytime someone joins like a large company like Google with this very complicated code base, it takes a while to onboard to, to that. And also just like, um, you know, figure out how to s speed up your own iteration cycles. Uh, and back in the day at Google, like, there, were, there weren't a lot of really nice tools to kind of make experiment management and experiment launching really easy. We had to like write all the kind of configs ourselves to, to bring things up. It wasn't, it wasn't the worst thing, but also, you know, um, for, for like a starter project, I think like a, a real world robotics thing where we didn't have a simulator and um, there was all these kind of very tricky nuances about how you actually like train two different models and you merge them together. That was definitely like a, a hard starter project, I would say. But that experience, I, I'm very grateful for the experience because like, 
um, you know, by comparison now, like after, after this kind of hard mode stuff, a lot of the future projects didn't seem as hard. And I also kind of took away a lot of like learnings from how to de-risk things and how to think about designing the, the solutions better. Yeah. And, you know, pain is part of the process. So <laughs> that's how you learn. Yeah. Um, cool. So yeah, so you, you went through this first project on semantic grasping and I guess what was your thinking after you finished that, you yeah. know, what, what was going through your mind and what did you wind up doing afterward? Right. So, so the work was accepted at the first Coral conference. And so in that regards, it was a success and the thing kind of worked as well. You could pick up the right objects with, um, you know, various architecture tweaks that we did, but I came away with two like really kind of strong beliefs um, that I still hold to this day. One is that this kind of intuition of this independent two-stream model where you have one semantic branch and one uh, kind of, uh, you know, semantic unaware grasping only branch, like a geometry branch, um, mm -hmm. that principle doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is that um, it's actually not really possible to decouple them independently. And so the, the, the problem that we're running into when we did this work, and I suspect actually future works that try to, you know, embody the same idea we'll run into is that like uh, the best grasp is not necessarily like the most informative of your semantics. So you might mm. have a, a grasp that's really good, but maybe like it's just not, a, it doesn't result in a good like view of your object that would then let it be classified as the, the right class that you want. And so this is also a sequential problem where you do a sequence of actions. So, uh, is that also part of the problem where you move the arm, you get a different image after you move the arm, and that sort of changes the probabilities and so on, right? right? And so this is building on top of the um, arm farm grasping paper. And uh, yeah. the kind of cool thing about that paper was that it's it's closed-loop visual servoing. So the inputs are just uh, image and proposed actions. And the arm, no matter, like, is taking multiple steps in the environment, and it's potentially occluding objects. Yeah, so occlusions are definitely a big problem in semantic grasping because the proposed action, or like the current position of the gripper, might be occluding the like you know part of the object that's very salient for predicting the class. So it, could, it might see like oh here's a really good grasping like position, so it goes there. But then it, now like the the semantic class probabilities get wiped out because it's now covering most of the object. It, yeah, it, yeah, the actions are just like moving the arm <laughs> a little bit, right? So once you move it, the image changes, and yeah, right. So um, you know we, we we came up with some like kind of tricks and hacks in the paper to try to stabilize like the semantic stream a little bit so that the um, what we call the dorsal stream or the ge geometry stream doesn't like interfere as much with the, the probabilities, even like, you know, trying some ideas like smoothing. But at the end of the day, if you kind of think about it, like it's actually very hard to disentangle the difference between geometry and semantics because the semantics are influenced by like the geometry itself. Um, and so this is kind of related to the whole thing about like end-to-end -end deep learning for robots, right? Like, like the, the idea of uh, the kind of core philosophy behind end-to-end -end learning for ro robotics is that you don't want to think about like how to break up your problem to these kind of separation of geometry and semantics. Everything is just like sort of a black box and it just understands the complexity of the world well enough to reason about what it needs to do to solve the task. Yeah, so you came away with this belief that it, it doesn't really work, it <laughs> sounds like, or, or maybe it's not the ideal thing. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you try next? Uh, you know, I am, I believe it wasn't on semantic grasping. So where did you go after that? Yeah. So, so after that project, um, I, I switched to working, helping with a, like a, a follow-up project that was again, built on top of the, um, original arm farm work, uh, which was led by Deirdre Quillen. And, um, the, the project was to extend the original, um, 
the original arm farm work, which was using supervised learning to learn like these graph success probabilities into a proper RL critic. So for people who are uh, less familiar with the kind of basics of reinforcement learning, the idea of like a RL critic is that the um, it represents a function saying like, if I take this action at this state and I arrive at some ne next state, and then at, at that state, I start doing the optimal policy, what is the best possible um, value I could get? At least that's that's the um, that's the kind of like optimal Q function, um, and then you know the, there's this learning algorithm called Q learning, uh, which then you know leads to a lot of the modern deep learning RL algorithms, which um, is basically trying to learn the Q function of your current policy and bring it closer to the Q the optimal Q function, in which you take optimal actions after you take a particular action environment. So I'll, I'll, this is just kind of like a in um, a bit of a technical background, but it's essentially just turning the problem from supervised learning to reinforcement learning uh, and the way we train it. And so the project that I was helping with next was trying to just debug this reinforcement learning thing, which wasn't working on the real robots. And uh, we've been kind of working at it for, for a while, and it still wasn't giving any signs of life. So um, the next uh, project I worked on, which turned into a paper, was trying to make a, a simpler toy environment and approximation of our grasping setup um, so that we could study like the basics of reinforcement learning algorithms on them, try a few different algorithms and see what's likely to work. And uh, that was the that was the deep reinforcement learning for vision-based robotic grasp. Yeah, yeah. So you, you had this paper. It was uh, also a simulated comparative evaluation of off policy methods. So if I remember correctly, as you said, you had a simpler environment, which is kind of the same thing you had in the real world, arm, you know, bin, objects, camera. But now you had it in simulation, so you could, I guess, pretty much just debug and figure out how do you make RL work. Uh, yeah, and, pretty much. And so did you get... You know, did that kind of enable you to figure out what works? Indeed, yeah. So there's two, I think, interesting findings from this work that then carried on to like influence a lot of the um, you know QT opt and successors to to the, all this grasping work. Um, the first finding was that uh, Q learning or like ver continuous versions of DQN, uh, which in the paper we called DQL, it, are quite robust to hyperparameters, and more so than algorithms like DEPG um, and, and such, especially when you're kind of training them in a batch uh, batch online procedure, which is sort of the norm in robotics where you collect a big bag of data, you concatenate to your previous data set, and then you continue training on it. Um, so so it's, it's folk knowledge that like algorithms like naive DDPG are fairly unstable, uh, but we were quite surprised to see that like, you know, Q-learning, you know, without fancy algorithmic changes seems to be quite robust across a large set of hyperparameters. And they give us the confidence to know that if we implemented something basically like Q-learning on the real robots, it should work regardless of like, you know, the hyperparameters that we use. Yeah, and this is interesting in part because, you know, we have reinforcement learning methods that, especially in continuous learning in, in robotics, usually often you train a policy, so you, you give it the image and it just outputs the action. It spits it out. So you, you do have a critic that estimates the Q function, but you only use that to train the policy. And then the policy is uh, only what you use. And the interesting bit is, in your case, you found that learning this critic, the Q function, and then just evaluating a bunch of actions is what winds up working best. So in, in a sense, it's a little less efficient 
because now you don't have a direct map mapping and you have to sort of try out a bunch of options. Uh, but yeah, it's interestingly, that's kind of been the approach that has been built upon since. And yeah, personally, I found it kind of interesting and a bit unexpected. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's a good point to make. So, so uh, for the audience, let me kind of elaborate a little bit on uh, what is typically expected of continuous control, and then um, what what we do instead, and actually what our lab continues to do to this day when we train, um, you know, QT opt-in and, and successors. So, typically in continuous control, there's this idea that in order to compute the action that maximizes your critic, um, you need to perform this optimization procedure with respect to your critic, and in continuous spaces. This uh, you know could be potentially pretty pretty challenging problem to solve, right? So so how do you maximize your critic value? Well, uh, algorithms like DDPG just do gradient ascent on your critic because it's just a neural network, so you can differentiate with respect to the neural network. Um, there's algorithms like um, by Shane Gu a few years ago called like uh, NAF, which is um, using like a the input convex representation of your your uh, value function. So by construction, you can just use a convex optimizer to get the max. And what we do, what we do in DQL grasping is we just sample a mini batch, I think like four to eight, four to sixteen random actions in your R four space, and we just take the max among the kind of random samples there. And this this is actually good enough to train, um, and you know this can be also implemented in graph in like uh, you know in TensorFlow one so. You don't have to like implement any kind of uh, complicated, um, you know, training loops and stuff where you, you you know you just kind of sample inputs and then you just find the max right and, and that's your that's your value. So everything can be done in like one forward pass and you don't need you don't need to like compute um, a replay buffer, a Bellman updates, and things like that. This reminds me another point, which is in some sense, Q learning is you know one of the simpler techniques. It's you know one of the fundamentals, and we we do have fancier things in RL. You know, you had many variants and extensions, so that's also the interesting bit. Is at the end of the day, just using kind of the simplest thing, one of the simplest things winds up being the most robust, uh, at least when you're working in this area. So that's again kind of. Pretty interesting, and that's often been <laughs> something that uh, can be found is at the end of the day sometimes the simplest thing with some sort of um, you know approach winds up being the best. Yeah, I think like this is a pretty common theme in all of machine learning and deep, and deep learning as as well, where like um, if you have like two neural networks that kind of whose training depends on each other. Things can often be a little bit unstable, you know, with GANs and with um, DDPG and active critic algorithms and such. And so they require careful tuning to make sure that they're they're in balance when you update them. And and I think modern algorithms do this really well. So it may be less of an issue than it was a few years ago. But I think there's also this kind of consistent pattern where, like, if you have two models that you, they have different objectives and you're trying to and they, they talk to each other, they pass gradients to each other. Things are a little tricky to optimize. And if you're in on like a real robot system, you don't have the the luxury of being able to evaluate every single model. So you really need, it's really, really important to have a recipe that may not be the, the kind of best algorithm, but it's it's very robust to your choice of hyperparameters. Um, another example of like where this shows up in generative modeling is this kind of idea of Langevin sampling, where, you know, you could use a, you, you could imagine using like a generator network to propose um, uh, images that, that kind of fool your discriminator. And that's kind of like the DDPG analog of doing gradient descent against a critic. 
but longevin sampling is just like using some sort of um, stochastic search instead to, um, well, well, longevin sampling has gradients involved, but it like combines like this kind of random sampling into into the um, into the the optimization procedure to to make it a little bit more robust. Yeah, so you created this simulated environment, and yeah, the paper itself basically has a lot of sort of graphs and things showing for a few different algorithms the results and showing you know these things worked, these things didn't. So it sounds like you did this in part to then basically figure out how to get RL working. And uh, is it correct to say that after you did the simulated part, you then knew how to actually implement it in the real world? And that led to QTOPT and all these systems that are running on the real robots. Is that about it? Um, almost. I would say like that's like yeah, almost correct. So, so the um, and you know, huge credits to my uh, the co-first authors Deirdre and Ophir for helping with this project. And um, we we the way we kind of de-risked the RL on, on grasping stuff was to build like this very lightweight, simple code base, where it's hard to make like infrastructure bugs, and we could just test ideas in a very like kind of pure environment. But then once you kind of de-risk it and you know you you convince yourself that like Q learning can work and it's stable, uh, we we did need to do some like you know tech transfer to the real robot system and all the kind of complex infrastructure involved with that. And the, the scale also is, is different there. And so actually most of that tech transfer work was led by um, Dmitry Kalashnikov and Alex Erpen, who um, who then like kind of took the learnings from this, this design and then implemented the distributed version of this into QTOP. Yeah, yeah. So the paper on that came up about a, a while later with a different team, but the basic algorithm was in part inspired by the skew learning idea and built on it. So that's cool. Yep. Yeah. So you worked a bunch on, on this arm farm uh, situation and yeah, you, this was about 2017, I think the vision based robotic grasping. Um, so what uh, did you do next? Yeah. So uh, I took on a couple of new projects after wrapping up the, um, uh, the DKL grasping work with the uh, simulated environment um, to two projects simultaneously. So one was starting to look into meta learning with um, uh, Alan Joe and Chelsea Finn. And then the other one was a continuation of the semantic grasping work. But this time I like, I knew how to do it right. And I had the kind of freedom to design it the way I wanted. And our grasping, our underlying grasping system was also a little better. So I was kind of redesigning the, um, the grasping system like and, and the idea of semantic grasping from scratch the way I like it. I see. So, uh, how did you like your semantic grasping? What did you change in, in this iteration? Yeah. So, I think like one of the one of the things that I always was like kind of second guessing myself on when I was originally working on semantic grasping in 2016 and 17 was like um, this idea of like transfer learning between classes and like what are what does it mean? What what is a cup? What is a what is a comb? What is a brush? Right? And like. Um, these, these kind of semantic questions are a little tricky because you, you know that the robot doesn't necessarily understand semantics the way a human would understand semantics. So um, it's kind of tricky to ask it to pick up things that like it doesn't necessarily have a, a great correspondence between like the, the specific objects that are in the bin and like what we call them on the internet, right? So, um, so, so the, I always got this kind of feeling that like class-based like semantics are a little tricky and and it's probably hard to have like a consistent set of semantics that work like everywhere in, 
in all cultures and in every situation that a robot would run into. So I like this idea more of like instance grasping, where you show an ob you show like an object to a robot, and it picks up the thing that's most semantically similar to the object, but not necessarily something that it thinks is absolutely that class. Um, mm -hmm. And and this kind of like embedding way of dealing with semantics seems a little bit richer and more general, and able to like have less semantic confusion than like a discrete class based. Yeah, and in a previous approach, uh, I imagined you sort of had to have a pre-trained classifier. So you, you got humans to label, you know, this is a cup, this is whatever. And then you used that uh, to then be part of a loop. Uh, whereas instance-based uh, approaches, you don't need this pre-labeling of, you know, this is a cup, this is whatever. You just show it a cup and it knows, well, this is something that looks like a cup, so I'll do that. Right. Uh, was that part of the motivation? Exactly. Yeah. Like, like the robot doesn't. Um, so I think yeah. One of the kind of w confusing things was like we were trying to transfer knowledge from data sets like image and JFT to the to the grasping system so that it could use knowledge about like cups and combs and whatever in in these image data sets and use them to pick up objects in in the real world. But we didn't have like very carefully curated real world objects that matched exactly like what we see in ImageNet. So as a result, there's a bit of a domain shift between like ImageNet combs. And, and our combs. In fact, we didn't even have combs. They were actually hairbrushes. So like, like we, we kind of semantically labeled them the wrong thing. And um, I think like all of this kind of made me feel like just the data management aspect of it was a little bit too complex. And if it just kind of recognized similar objects, like, you know, let's say it, it picked up the same object before and you just want to show it the same object again, it doesn't need to know what class it is. It just needs to know that it's like, it's in the bin, right? So mm -hmm. um, I think that also would probably handle like new objects better, right? So, so like one of the original arm farm cool res arm farm results was like the ability to pick up objects it hasn't seen before. But in, if you imagine like a semantic class-based approach, it probably would have like lower semantic confidence on completely new instances of classes it hasn't seen before. But it should still know how to pick up the object, right? It shouldn't need to like classify an object perfect perfectly or recognize it like its its semantics perfectly in order to pick it up. So mm -hmm. I think like just the instance grasping formulation is a little bit more well posed and also just like a more generally better fit for like the, the capabilities of deep learning, right? Like, like, it, um, I think even today, like most industrial pick and play systems still probably have a sort of class based object detection fused with a unconditional grasp planner type approach. But if you look at like what deep learning strengths are, it's to be able to handle like this kind of fuzzy boundary between classes and handle, um, you know, things that you haven't seen before, even if you don't know what they're called. And so, so I think from that perspective, like instance instance grasping is a more, uh, you know, paradoxically, it feels like a harder problem, but it's actually easier to engineer because because you don't have to think about semantics and labels. Yeah, you don't need to bin all objects into n you know classes. You just take each instance of an object at a time. But uh, yeah, now you have this problem where you don't have an image classifier from the start. You need to somehow learn which objects look similar. Uh, so how did you get go about that? How did that work? Right, so this um, this was how we developed the grass to vec work. And this was work led by myself and Colleen Devon and uh, Vincent Anhook and Sergey Levin. Um, so so the, the key insight and, you know, Credits to Colleen for spending most of her internship at Google developing this representation loss aspect um, was trying to find a way to 
learn a representation of objects without going through the trouble of having human labelers tell you what object it picked up. And the, the key insight we had was like, you know, you can use a word to vec style kind of relationship between um, embeddings where, you know, in word to vec, there's this idea that if you do like um, man minus woman plus queen is equal to king, right? Where the, the kind of distance between um, man and woman is the same vector between king and, king and queen. So if you, if you take that difference vector and you add it to queen, it becomes king. Um, so, so this same idea could be potentially applied to like semantics of the set of objects in the real world. So imagine like you have a the same um, arm farm setup where you have a monocular camera and it's looking at a bin of objects. You know, who knows how many objects are there and it picks up an object. You now have three images. Uh, one image is like the, the set of objects in the bin before it was grasped, the set of objects in the bin after it was grasped. And the last image is that maybe the robot can hold up the object that it just grasped or maybe an empty gripper and look at what's in its hand. And um, assuming the object is not like, you know, broken into multiple pieces or new objects aren't suddenly added into the, the bin during the episode, which can happen in robotics, um, the, the kind of like, uh, you can think about this representation embedding that respects like uh, pre-grasp bin embedding minus post-grasp bin embedding is equal to the embedding of what you're looking at in your hand after you pick up the grasp. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you learn to basically in the image understand, you know, if if this object goes missing from a bin and then you see it, you know, in 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 front of you, you know that this object in a bin is the same thing you see in front of you. So you learn this three image setup, and then how do you use that, you know, after training to then grasp specific objects, uh, you know, just when you deploy it after training? Yeah, yeah. So so we use this kind of. Um this assumption about reality, you know, and the nature of grasping, to then impose a representation loss that trains the thing that is looking at the, th uh, the in-hand stuff, as well as like what's in the bin. Um, and that gives you actually two useful embeddings. One embedding lets you compare whether two in-hand objects are the same. And then the other embedding lets you take the dot product of the, um, you know, one single object representation with the scene, like a dense kind of pixel-wise descriptor, and it tells you where, like, where in the image map um, is the is the kind of desired object most salient. And so this is really cool because essentially you're learning object localization uh, in a completely unsupervised way, and you're also learning like object, um, like um, object nearest neighbors kind of clustering in a in a completely unsupervised way without any labels. And so this is very nice because the quality of data is very high. You don't have like human labeled noise and you can collect as much data as you want. It works for both successes and failures. Um, and this gives you this kind of ability to also do like hindsight reward labeling where if you, if you have a commanded goal image and then you pick up something, you can compare the, the semantics of what you picked up with what you commanded. And then that can be also a reward function for telling you whether you picked up the right object. Um, and so, so, uh, the, the kind of starting assumption is that you have a grasping system and, and, you know, recall that from the arm farm work that the grasping system can be learned in a completely unsupervised way without human labels. And if you have this uh, unconditioned grasping system, you can actually use its data collection capabilities and some mild assumptions <clears throat> about the real world to bootstrap an even more powerful capability on top of, on top of that. All mm -hmm. still without any human labels, which is, I think, quite nice. 
Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's pretty cool, you know, in object recognition, usually you have these labeled classes. So you, you see an image and you associate it with the word cup. Here you don't have these labels. So in a sense, you don't learn that a cup is a cup, you know, in terms of label, but you learn what a cup looks like. So you can tell if something is a cup or not. You just don't know that particular word for it, which is kind of kind of fun. Like the robot learns what objects look like on its own without any human help. Uh, aside from you know all the code that you had to write and so on yeah around this time of my career um i had i had sort of swung like far to the side of like um you know uh kind of disregarding linguistics and thinking that like words and semantics are kind of useless and the less semantics you have the better um mm -hmm. i would later go on to kind of change my mind and think that language is much more important but like you know in this phase of my career like i was trying to have as, as few kind of ideas of words as possible and just have the robot like kind of increase its capabilities, you know, in a in sort of semantic -less, wordless way without human labels. Mm, yeah. And that's certainly one approach that was pretty popular notion of self-supervised learning where, and self-supervision is still, you know, pretty huge. So it's Indeed, certainly yeah. one of the areas that is pushing a lot of AI forward. Now, as you said, at the same time, sort of in parallel, you had this uh, our project on meta-learning, uh, this watch, try, learn, meta-learning from demonstration and words. So yeah, what, what was that all about? Yeah, so the watch, try, learn work began as a kind of goal um, that uh, you know, Chelsea Finn set when she joined Google uh, full-time uh, for, for her kind of like her postdoc is um, is to bring the kind of recent advances in meta learning and meta uh, imitation learning and meta reinforcement learning for which there were some very exciting developments in the field to real world robots and, and scale it up. Um, so we wanted to basically, you know, the kind of high level idea is build a robot that can learn tasks really quickly and also do the um, meta imitation and and the reinforcement learning in a very sample efficient way. That was the high level goal. And of course, there's it's very open-ended problem. There's many kind of design, um, design kind of like choices to make here of like how you do the meta imitation, how you combine it with meta reinforcement learning, like what's the action space, what's the state space, blah blah blah. So, so uh, we started with this very open-ended problem, and we wanted to like um, de-risk this this setting. Um, so, the way we split up the work was we had this kind of research code base that was led by Alan and Chelsea, where they set up something very similar to the DQL grasping work. It's like a toy environment in Python where they could iterate quickly, and then, but you know, have that environment approximate what we want to eventually do in the real robots. And then I was working on setting up the real robot infrastructure and starting the data collection on the real robot infrastructure. Later on, that real robot infrastructure would go on to become the uh, BZZ work, which I can talk a little bit about later. But uh, the the kind of meta learning project started off as you know, this goal of bringing meta imitation and meta reinforcement learning to, to a kind of a larger scale problem. Yeah. And this is kind of a cool extension of what you've done so far. You've mainly focused on grasping, you know, this, this one thing for a robot to do, which is very important, but still, you know, it only learn, learns grasping and then meta learning. The idea is you learn a bunch of things you learned, you know, grasping, but also pushing and also, I don't know, rotation or something. And as you learn this variety of things, you also learn, how to pick up new skills faster, right? That's that's basically at a high level what meta learning is. 
So yeah, what what sort of tasks were you looking at to you know learn to learn, and uh, I suppose what was the main approach you ended up taking? Yeah, I remember the early days of this kind of project planning that we're discussing, like the scope of the project. Um, I don't know if the, this is just part of like how Google does things, but maybe I think it's also true in academia as well. There, I think there tends to be like this kind of huge scope creep in like thinking about what we're going to get general purpose robots to do and like how general we want to design the algorithms and, you know, all the things that they could possibly do. So, you know, we, we had this kind of robot system that was developed by everyday robots. And um, we were thinking about like just basically solving all of robotics with this one project, which is in hindsight, like <laughs> not a great plan. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, but that's how the, the, the kind of the early stages was like, you know, we wanted to find an action space and an observation space that was fully general and we could solve everything with that, that action space and meta learn everything. Um, and of course, like the simulated, you know, toy experiments, we ended up converging to a much simpler set of tasks, which is like pushing, placing, um, pushing a button, things like that. Yeah, yeah. So many people who don't know robotics research or, or the state of robotics research might be surprised that this is still mostly what we do is just like stacking a couple objects, pushing objects, you know, sometimes moving on some legs, but we are very far away from, you know, robots that can do whatever we do in our environments, which is you know, maybe not something you would think of as, as a non-AI researcher. And it's pretty frustrating, but it's just something you have to accept, I guess. Yeah, I think um, someone mentioned, like asked me this question of like, why are demos still kind of looking like what they what they were like 30 years ago? And it's true. It's true. Like our demos today still look like, like the demos from 30 years ago, maybe even arguably worse because we're not like, you know, deep learning people are not necessarily roboticists who know how to make things fast and, and, you know, the dynamics all, all stable and stuff. Um, I, I would say like the most, much of the progress in I think robotic deep learning has been swapping out the internals under the hood of like everything in the robotic stack. So even though the demo is looking very similar, the system is fundamentally much more general in a way that the demo is not kind of, um, doing service, doing justice to. And so, so my hope is that like, in very short period of time, the capabilities of these learned systems will start to be able to do things that like a non-learned system has never done before. It's just that like they're not super appropriate for making demo videos, but I think once we get a certain level of capability, we'll just like, you know, practitioners and and researchers alike will know that like in order to get a certain level of capability and and like you know multitask, blah, 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 you just need to use the deep learning. Mm, exactly. Yeah. We just want to get learning working and that's harder than just, you know, making robot do it by programming. Yeah. Just, just to actually give another example. So like even if we can even just compare deep learning to deep learning. So if you look at like the guided policy search work from 2015 by, um, you know, Sergey and Chelsea, um, the, the robot does some very impressive things. And like some of those tasks are even more impressive than what we can do today. But it's not easy to imagine like a single network doing all of those things and then also 10 other things like that's the, the video would look very similar because it's doing the same things and maybe some other things, but like training a network to do, just do like, you know, 10 more tasks on top, a single network to do 10 more tasks on top of what it could already do is actually not so simple. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So getting back to this work, uh, just at a very high level, um, 
I think, is it correct to say that the basic concept was kind of showing that you can combine imitation learning and reinforcement learning. So you have a, you know, a human show how to do one task. You have a robot try to do it via trial and error. And then with just these, you know, relatively few experiences, it can then figure out how to do it correctly. That's uh, right. Was that what you got to work? Exactly. So there's two components, the meta imitation and the meta reinforcement learning problem. And um, the capability of the system is that it first watches a video of, of a human demonstration doing the task. And then condition on the video, it imitates the task. If it fails, we can pass the failure video back into a second policy that looks at the same information as the first policy plus an additional video embedding. And then that policy spits out an improved version of the behavior where it then does the correct task. And the way that we train both of these policies, we call them the phase one and phase two policies, is just supervised learning. So it's a little bit unusual, I think, like, to actually use supervised learning to implement something that's like you know classically thought as meta RL, but if you look at like the requirements for like what we needed, it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, which is that we wanted something that works on like image pixels. We wanted something that works on multiple tasks with one network, and um, you know, I think that the kind of generalization capabilities of supervised learning tend to be a little bit ahead of like reinforcement learning. And not to say reinforcement learning can't do it, but just like the kind of ease at which you can get a certain qualitative behavior uh, and, and the kind of relative pain and effort you need to do, go through, it's a little bit easier with like supervised learning approaches when you're dealing with things like images and multitask. So given these kind of design requirements, we thought that it would make sense to just use kind of supervised learning networks to predict the meta improvement and meta reinforcement learning capabilities. As opposed to something like, you know, uh, MAML or... Um, or like using policy gradients to, to optimize the um, the meta reinforcement learning. Yeah, yeah, and, and just to give it a little picture, to end in a paper, you have you know these graphics of in a simulated environment, you have like a little you know two finger gripper, not even a, a full robot arm, and then it is able to learn. So it's still you know early early stage, but you know you, you showed that the approach uh, can work. And so, yeah, moving on, as you mentioned, next there's BCZ, uh, which is also kind of in this realm of learning to learn uh, things quickly or being able to do many tasks uh, after having done a lot of stuff. So, yeah, what was sort of the idea having done this watch, cry, learn? Uh, where did you want to head next and how did that lead to BCZ? Yeah, so so this this project was actually the one that started in 2018 as no. kind of an idea of getting meta imitation and meta reinforcement learning on real robots. So this this project had been like proceeding all while we were working on BCC. Sorry, on uh, Watch Try Learn, and um, you know, Alan and Chelsea did most of the coding and experimental work on Watch Try Learn. At the time, I was helping with infrastructure and also like just trying to make the robotic equivalent of Watch Try Learn work. So. Uh, BCZ paper ended up not having any meta RL experiments for reasons I can get into regarding like simulation and such. But um, the the kind of end product is more or less like what we sought out to do, which is get a robot that can do many things. And you know you can you can kind of call it you can put it under the banner of meta learning or meta imitation learning if you want. But uh, that label it's just kind of a, like an algorithmic label, and it's maybe even just better to understand the system for what it can do, which is like uh, generalization to tasks it hasn't seen before without, without like, um, you know, few shot data at all. 
Yeah, so yeah, the full title here is Zero Shot Task Generalization or Robotic Imitation Learning. So, you know, meta or not, whatever, kind of the same uh, eventual result. So I guess what is the distinction uh, in terms of their approach? And yeah, maybe just give an overview of what this whole thing is. Yeah, so, so the, the high-level architecture is actually very similar to Watch Trailer, um, at least the phase one policy of Watch Trailer, where you just do meta imitation. So we have a task encoder that looks at a video of a human doing a task. It embeds it into some space. And then we, we pass that space as a, a conditioning embedding into a visual motor policy, which is just mapping an image to an action. So you imagine two inputs, a task embedding and an image. They get passed through a convolutional neural network, and then it spits out the raw actions, just like in Watch Trailer. Um, and in fact, we started with the Watch Trailer architecture, and then we made tweaks to kind of speed up optimization, um, such as like replacing the ComNet with a ResNet and then the um, embeddings with the concat embeddings with film embeddings. But those are minor details, and I don't honestly think that they're that important for, uh, for getting this method to work. Um, so so the, the algorithm is like super simple, right? It's like the, pretty much for a multitask like system, the most obvious thing you can do, which is supervised learning on expert trajectories from images to actions, and also pass in the task. Um, and and that, that, that's basically what we did. So there's obviously some details that it, uh, to make this work and to scale it up. Um, one of the interesting findings we found was that like, the video conditioning on human videos didn't work on holdout tasks until we tried training on language space. And so let me elaborate a little bit. Like, um, so so with, with language, like you can imagine it's just like a different way to get a task embedding, right? So instead of having a human uh, video where the human's picking up a, a cup, you just say, pick up the cup, and you embed that string using a off-the-shelf sentence encoder, and then you pass that embedding into the, the neural network architecture. So um, we tried this on, on the you know, data we had collected so far, because we had, we'd had the, the language pairs already. And we found that it would, just from training on 100 tasks, it's able to generalize to unseen combinations of verbs and objects in, in, uh, in, in those set of tasks. And then... Then we tried aligning the video embeddings to the language, and the only then did the holdout videos start to show some signs of life, where like you can show it a video of a holdout task that it hasn't seen before, and then it'll do the task correctly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the that's the basic. This is, I guess, also a neat part compared to Watch Try Learn, where no longer are you just seeing a human doing it in a video, whatever. Now you're combining. A demonstration and a description in language, which is, I think, very intuitive for us as humans, right? You don't want to just show something, you want to explain why you're doing it or what you're doing. And so is that also what led to this zero-shot uh, task generalization uh, idea? Yeah, we didn't set out to do zero-shot behavior. Actually, at the start of the project, we were just trying to do video conditioning. And it was only in trying to debug the video conditioning that we tried the language stuff. But it turns out that language ends up being quite central and important to this generalization. I think um, the, the community is really moving towards language conditioned robotics as, as the kind of like kind of cool thing and important thing to work on now. Uh, but at the time that we were kind of scoping out this um, BCZ work, uh, you know, in 2018, we had actually thought that video was the preferred modality because it was arguably a little more general than linguistic stuff. So, you know, like you can describe a lot of things, but some things just are a little bit tricky to describe in words. And we felt that like it would actually be simpler to use video uh, videos of people manipulating the objects rather than getting the robot to understand language. 
And I guess like one of the kind of surprising findings was that language just seems to work a little better. Yeah, and and then you get to the zero shot aspect where, you know, uh, I guess the distinction is you no longer need to give a demonstration. You know, the demonstration is kind of one shot because you have one example of language. You just you know tell it what to do and it does it without ever having seen anyone do it. And so you trained it. I think on kind of a hundred manipulation tasks, you had a large data set, which I guess you collected over a while. And, and then how, how well did it generalize? What were you able to get it to do uh, with just language? Sure. So the, um, yeah, we collected data for, you know, several years, but had different variations of the data set. Uh, so, so some of the tasks that like are in the training set of tasks, the hundred tasks are like uh, pick up the green bowl or pick up the white cup or put the, um, put the bottle in the bowl. And then we had a, another set of tasks. Um, so, so we had actually two splits of objects. We had uh, six objects that parameterized 21 tasks. And then we had like 15 objects that parameterized the remaining 79 tasks. And these are separate like training splits. So like we never mixed objects between them in, in training. But at test time, you can like mix objects between these scenes and command tasks that involve these objects, which haven't been you know, paired together in the training tests. So not only is the, the sentence completely new, but also like the, the set of objects that the robot is seeing now are completely new, um, or they hasn't seen that combination before. And so like, for example, we might have a put the bottle in the tray, which is like combining two objects from different object sets and a, a completely unseen sentence uh, string. And it does this fairly reliably. Um, the performance, overall performance is not super strong. So I think like on the non-zero success rates, we're getting something like 44%. Um, but you know, it's definitely like doing something reasonable. And I think getting that from like 44% to a much higher percentage is, is just a matter of like engineering and careful data management and maybe a little bit of like, um, tricks with, uh, you know, dagger or reinforcement learning. Yeah. Yeah. And as a roboticist, just to give a bit of a broader perspective, I think this is pretty cool because the zero shot idea of you just are told what to do and you do it. Uh, is not sort of what most of most of what we do is imitation learning or reinforcement learning, where you actually learn to do a particular task and you do it. So you need to actually try or or be shown what to do, and then you can do those things that you learn to do, but not anything else. Uh, whereas here, you are starting to get this generalization where you can, uh, without even learning or training anymore, you know, do stuff that you haven't done before. So very, very difficult things still for robotics and reinforcement in general. And so, yeah, I think this paper is, is neat in that respect. And I wonder if that's something that, um, you've sort of been thinking about more in terms of what to do next. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would say like, this is just the very early days, but I think this, this direction where like we see better zero shot generalization behavior in, in all dimensions, not just like composing objects, but like you can imagine zero shotting to new new locations or zero shotting to objects you haven't trained on before. Like all of this kind of falls under this big umbrella of like just generalizing in more things. And many research papers have kind of like tackled different axes here, right? But but if you think about the directionally where the field is going, I think where it'll go and I hope I hope it'll go is that like all forms of generalization expand in the future and like um, yeah, it's not so much like, oh, what is a task or like, uh, you know, how, what is a zero shot or a few shot? It's more just like the things it can do right out of the box are just much more impressive. 
Mm, yeah, exactly. And so uh, moving on, I think this PCZ is, is relatively recent. So this was your most recent published work. Uh, but also more recently in the last few months, uh, you've been kind of releasing some, not really research, but blog posts, kind of just thinking and, and putting out some, uh, you know, ideas and thoughts as to the state of the field, which are pretty related. And so, I, yeah, it'll be fun to discuss. And starting off with, um, you know, given this topic of generalization, you have a blog post titled Just Ask for Generalization, which I imagine was uh, related to this work. Uh, so yeah, what what is kind of your main idea you wanted to convey in that one? Yeah, so having worked on BCZ for like since 2018, I've been thinking a lot about like, you know, what is hard, like where to go and uh, what is generalization, all that stuff for, for quite some time now. Um, so yeah, the, the kind of Motivation for just as generalization came about when I was um, thinking about like the uh, the recent kind of uh, VQVAE plus clip results. And just for context, the the kind of cool result was that you can take these multimodal embeddings trained using clip on internet scale image and language data, and then if you pair that with a VQVAE um, a generative model, you can use that to generate text conditioned. Uh, images. So um, one such image, one, one, one cool kind of empirical discovery is this kind of prompt engineering of generate language conditioned image generation. And if you append the string Unreal Engine to to this, these um, these these language conditioned generation tasks, it creates very sharp images that are very nice to look at. And this overnight, just like this kind of prompt engineering thing, solved the problem of like how do you get sharp images in um, image generation. So, for example, with with um, in 2014, 2015, when when the first GANs and VEs were starting to be like you know, explored for larger data sets, people were finding that images tended to be quite blurry or just like very low diversity, right? In, in the case of GANs and blurry in the case of VEs. And so, people struggle for like there's hundreds of papers published on like how to make VEs sharper, and many of them kind of had these mathematical, kind of technically complex justifications. But then, like you know, some some kind of naive thing where you just ask the model to be sharp by appending Unreal Engine to the to the prompt, it's kind of solved the problem, and it's not really a problem anymore for VAEs. So yeah, it's it's the funny. Just to give an example, you know, this whole thing you glue an image generator to a thing that you know this understands if an image matches some text. So you give it some text like you know a big boat in a stormy ocean, and it creates an image for you. And the funny thing, and then really, yeah, kind of amusing, but also surprising thing is, um, you know, if you just say a boat in an ocean, it gives you, you know, not not a great image, but when you say a boat in a stormy ocean, rendered in Unreal Engine, and it shows you something that looks like it's Unreal Engine. So, you know, it's, it's purely just because it trained on the whole internet, it knew what Unreal Engine looks like and it looks high res and it wound up being high res. So it, it's a very, you know, it was just things that people found on Twitter, you know? Yeah. And, and that, yeah. Was, that was the motivation for like this um, Just Ask General for Generalization blog post. It's that like, when we, as AI researchers, when we design algorithms, we often don't actually take generalization for granted, right? We, we, we kind of write down some sort of construction that, solves a problem that we've identified in our in our existing solutions but at no point do we kind of just say like oh you know um 
if I model the distribution of blurry images and Unreal Engine images, then I just have to condition on the Unreal Engine data. And then like the kind of data sharing between all the different data points that your, your model has seen will just magically kind of give you the, the sharp image. Like that's that's not a that's not like a, a, um, a tool, a tool that a lot of people kind of lean on when they're thinking about how to solve problems in ML, but maybe it is right. Like, like because deep nets are doing more and more impressive generalization things in a kind of hand wavy sense of what generalization is like, maybe we can actually start to rely on that for solving very hard problems in, you know, not only image generation, but also maybe reinforcement learning and, you know, AI alignment and things like that. Mm, so is a basic, concept here instead of you know engineering a solution for something and really focusing on, on, on that one aspect um, kind of do this other idea of you know the way these things work clear GPT free is you just train on a lot of data right and you don't specify kind of a subset for data to do one thing you just learn a lot about a lot and you may not even know all the things you learn. And then, so you, you're basically saying, it sounds like, you know, don't learn the one thing, learn a lot of stuff. And then as a result, you'll, you'll be able to do this thing and also other things. Right. There's another paper from OpenAI called the um, uh, Conditional Generative Models. I, I, I might have, um, oh, sorry, Distribution Augmentation Paper. Yeah. So the idea is also very simple, which is like, you know, it's classically in image generative models. People just take your training data and then you just maximize your likelihood on the images that come out of your training data. So what the folks at OpenAI did was that they, they learned a hard, a kind of a strictly wider distribution, which is that they learned the conditional density model on the augmented images, not just like the images. And so for example, the, like instead of learning P of X, they learned P of cropped image conditioned on the crop uh, categorical variable. And by training on this kind of augmented version of the, the distribution, they get better test likelihoods when they condition on the, you know, the zero, the zero crop or the zero rotation, which is the actual distribution that you wanted to optimize for, right? But they're kind of taking this, this circuitous route where they, they learn a strictly wider problem, and that actually helps them generalize to the problem that they wanted to optimize for, for the, in the first place, which is very challenging to optimize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we've seen that also in reinforcement learning, sort of uh, in 2020, amusingly, one of the big results was basically exactly this, where instead of just learning on the data the agent has seen, you learn on that and also augmented versions, basically crops and, and some other things as well, like flipping the image and so on. And just doing that very simple thing uh, makes learning way, way, way faster. You know, you don't need any fancy algorithm, you just augment your data. Um, and, you know, that augmentation has been around for a long time and generally helps, helps in supervised learning. But I guess we are starting to discover, it, it seems like, just how powerful it can be. And really, I don't know, kind of adopting that as a, as a default, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, I, I want, you know, I, I'm not confident this will, like, turn out to be true, but I, I wonder if in the future, like, there's going to be more emphasis on, data augmentation as a, as a way to kind of like um, speed up optimization, which is very, you know, counterintuitive, right? Like typically you think about data augmentation as having a sort of a, a regularizing effect, not a like optimization, um, you know, speed up effect. So like, 
you know, when we think about speeding up things, we often think about like, oh, you know, more parallelism or more compute or lower lower variance gradients or you know curriculum, but but maybe like you know just increasing data in a somewhat IID naive way will give you some sort of kind of Moore's law effect. Yeah, it's it's interesting because as you say, it's unintuitive. You have more data that's more varied. Your data set is more complex. It should be harder to fit to problems. It should take longer to train, right? Like like that's yeah. some kind of intuition. Yeah. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, I think in, in his blog post, you have uh, you cite one paper that very surprisingly shows that, in fact, I don't know if that's the open AI paper, but yeah, that the learning actually becomes faster, which is, uh, yeah. I, I, I haven't um, tried to like reproduce the work myself, but I think that's actually one of the most exciting directions of ML right now, which is kind of studying the role that increasing data has on speeding up optimization. And, and I think like, you know, the... the the key missing piece that I think everyone's not really seeing here is like, if that's if that empirical observation holds that like more data somehow speeds up optimization, that really is kind of hammering the point home that generalization is key to speeding up things, right? Like, like the fastest way to speed up an optimization problem is to, to get more generalization first, and then like that speeds up your learning. Yeah, so that's kind of a broad thing, and it relates to a lot of stuff going on right now in the broader AI field. But also, I wonder how do you connect this back to robotics and I guess reinforcement learning, but especially robotics? How can we think about generalization there, where one of the challenges is we can't have internet scale data, right? You can't just get a bunch of images by scraping all the websites. That's that's certainly very challenging. Um, yeah, so I think one of the, for, you know, as roboticists, we we know that this is a problem. But just for the, the kind of general audience, in robotics, um, data collecting enough data is always much harder. And there's a few schools of thought on how to get enough data. One approach is to kind of rely on you know self supervised learning, or I, it's it's kind of like this umbrella catch all term for like a cheap way to get a lot of signal to learn general things. So you can imagine like video prediction or, um, you know, some sort of like, um, you know, people holding like handheld grippers with GoPros attached to them. And, and then the ego motion of the gripper kind of tells you a lot about how to interact with the real world in a very cheap way. Like, you know, I think there's this big umbrella of like cheap data collection type and then general representation learning algorithms that will that will help. Uh, another one is like knowledge transfer from the internet. So you know, scrape YouTube and learn representations from that. Um, and then I think actually a very underestimated approach is just the brute force thing, which is just to uh, collect the data in the real world. And it turns out that collecting data in the real world for robotics is not too expensive if you're like a startup or a big company. Um, well, the, the really expensive thing, though, is like iterating on your model with the data and like trying to um, yeah, just see whether your, your, your system works or not. I think that's actually an incredibly costly aspect of robotics that informed my other blog posts on like robots must be ephemeralized. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good segue to that blog post where it, it also relates a bit to your prior work in research, uh, it, it seems like. So... Um, what's the takeaway? <laughs> what What are you saying? What does it mean for what's to be ephemeralized? Yeah, so I can give like the kind of twenty second summary of this. It's that um, you know, 
in robots, like, you know, roboticists kind of pride themselves on doing something in the real world. And there's some roboticists who kind of sneer at people doing like RL Majoko stuff in Simmons saying like, that's not robotics. So like, there's this kind of, I guess, hubris from roboticists who feel like it's not robotics unless it's in the real world. Um, and it's true that the real world has a lot of like nice aspects to it for like, as a, as a learning platform, um, it forces you to use like general algorithms. It forces you to use simple methods, but once you get something kind of semi working, you actually really quickly hit this complexity ceiling where it's not possible to try like really complex ideas unless you have a simulator that can really like de-risk all your infrastructure for you. So one of the, I think, limitations of the BCC work is that we didn't invest time in building a really, really good simulator for the set of manipulation tasks that, um, that we, we did in the paper. And that resulted in, in, in our performance numbers not being as high as I think they could have been. Um, and it also prevented us from trying anything more complicated than behavior cloning. Uh, so for example, like, I think that you know, we, we tried several ideas on, around like sequential models at some point, but it's just like so hard to debug these things in real. And um, I think just if you want to do anything more complex than that, or like if you want to do anything with RL, or if you want to do anything with you know, non-standard architectures for how you make decision-making. So for example, some very cool work from, um, from my colleagues like Pete Florence and Corey Lynch, they did uh, implicit behavior cloning where they reparameterized the generative model of actions as an um, energy-based model. Um, you know, that's a very cool th system that has a lot of nice properties, but you must have a simulator to implement that. Like it's not possible to implement such ideas without a simulator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it sounds like you do like this br brute force approach of just, you know, collect, <laughs> make robots collect stuff, you know, have people control them uh, or, or just have uh, arm farm with a lot of stuff. And that works to some extent where you can collect a bunch of data and then uh, build an algorithm and so on. And the key distinction it sounds like is once you did that and you have a large data set, the, the tough part is, you know, if you want to iterate and try things every time you want to try something, you may need to do a bit more data collection and a bit more stuff and reconfigure the real world. And that kind of need to do a lot of different things after the, the batch, whatever, like continually try and um, kind of vary what you're collecting. That is sort of, where the brute force isn't quite working because you need to continually do it. And yeah, it sounds like you want to sort of work in the real world, but also be able to then test and iterate and kind of expand uh, also in simulation. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I think also this is a problem that becomes even worse if you're tackling the kind of goals of general purpose robots, which is robots that can do many things. So if your robot does many tasks, then carefully comparing this, the performance of your model to like yesterday's model or some other A-B test that you're doing is incredibly expensive because you have to enumerate over all the generalization scenarios that your, your model is supposed to generalize to. And I think one of the kind of um, Achilles heel of deep learning systems is that they're very hard to unit test. Like they can only be in integration tested and like regression tested with respect to like some frozen, you know, checkpoint and code, right? So just because it does like some set of tasks well, um, like if you have a, if your policy is like an end-to-end -end neural network and it and its performance on like 
you know, a subset of the tasks is better than some other models. It doesn't tell you anything about whether those, like the performance on the, um, you know, remaining tasks will, will be better or not. Uh, whereas, you know, more kind of modular systems from an engineering standpoint might be able to tell you that by construction. For example, you could test the perception part in a grass planting park separately. So I think like the, the kind of the challenge of, if, if you assume that the only way to test end-to-end um, -end methods and deep learning based methods is like integration testing of, you know, many different generalization situations, then the only cost effective way to, to do that testing is to do that in simulation. Yeah, yeah, and this is interesting because I think, you know, we've seen a lot of work um, and it's a popular sort of approach of training and simulation and transferring to a real world where you can do all this data collection and simulation where it's cheap and then via kind of a few kind of different types of methods then transfer it to a real robot. But this is a little distinct where it's sort of, you usually the idea is then you sort of don't care about the simulation once you train and you just do stuff in the real world where versus this perspective is more like you need to continually be able to run your model and sort of test and, and almost like uh, have it be um, parallel working in simulation and the real world so that you can inform what the model would do in the real world from simulation uh, and also kind of vice versa. So it's a pretty interesting perspective and something I don't think is that commonly done yet in AI research. Like we, we maybe have appendix experiments, sometimes in simulation, but usually it's not really the common approach. And I'm curious if that will become kind of more common. I think it'll be more common if more people start training general systems that can do many things. And then like the cost of evaluating such a general thing, let's say a hundred different tasks, takes like a week. So, so for example, our, our BCZ system, um, we were testing about one model a day and like we had a team of like teleoperators who were uh, performing kind of this shared autonomy evaluation. So it was quite a lot of samples per day of evaluation. And even then, like we weren't able to get great coverage across all the tasks. And our, our performance measure is so noisy that like it's really hard to know sometimes whether the model is truly better or not just within one day. So I think if the if the field starts to build more general capabilities where like the, the the kind of performance of the system cannot be known in just like a few minutes, but you have to evaluate it for thousands and thousands of trials, I think the community will collectively kind of um, realize this this important need to to do simulated test regression testing and, and experiment like verification. I think the, the the challenge of collecting enough training data is almost kind of like a um, a very minor problem to me compared to to the, the problem of like iteration on general systems. Mm. Yeah, and, and that goes back to when we talked about how most research is still, you know, you, you solve the one task or these few tasks, but you don't aim to do tasks that you didn't train for uh, versus, you know, the very concept of generalization is you, you know, um, try to learn to then do a lot of tasks, you know, and BCZ, for instance, where you had a hundred tasks is well beyond what usually most papers do. And in fact, we don't even have benchmarks in robotics that are like, these are 50, 100, et cetera, tasks. So it's something uh, many people in the field want to move toward. And I think a lot of people are talking about it, but it's, it's challenging and, you know, Hopefully, over this next few years, this will be something we start cracking. Yeah, I think on the benchmark stuff, it's it's definitely hard because you know robots are real and stuff. I, I would say like 
just to really hammer the point home of how how clear of a problem this will be for every roboticist out there as, as the capabilities go up. Imagine like, you know, some, you know, we, we think about something like ImageNet or JFT being very general, right? Like in perception, it's, it's obviously much more general than what we see in a robot today. So imagine like the cost of evaluating every example in the validation set of, of ImageNet as taking like one minute. And like, and there's, I don't know how many, you know, hundreds of thousands yeah of something images, like fifty thousand right? to like a hundred thousand images like an image that like that's yeah. the, that's the kind of like statistical um you know significance you need for a few like within less than a percent right of, of um evaluation so so like and imagine like you know it's not just like you can get something from the the example and then like you show it to the you show it to your model and then you get some score it's like you have to you have to have a human set up the world in a way that the model can then look at the look at the image and then give you the score, right? So imagine like a scenario where you're doing a real world image net model eval where you have to go get someone to bring a camera to like the, the physical world and take a picture. Like that's what it's like to do like general purpose robotics. It's like there's this model that can potentially generalize to many things, but you don't know what they are. And you can't just like look at a subset of them. Like you can't just look at the, the dog classes because, because it doesn't capture the long tail performance. And who knows like what the, you know, the model learns or like knows or doesn't know, right? So you really have to evaluate everything. Um, and I think that's where robotics is. At. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really actually, uh, from that point of view, it's easy to argue that this is inevitable. You know, there's just no other way you have to do it in simulation uh, in some way. You know, maybe there's details, but whatever. Well, to play the devil's advocate, like, obviously, this is not what I believe. But I think, like, you know, people who argue that the, the deep learning for robotics is a mistake might argue that, like, from a software engineering perspective, monolithic systems that you can't unit test and break into smaller testable components are just like not are just too risky to like deploy because because like you know it's a it's a black box and you can't the only way to test and verify like so so as, as someone who works on like you know a team of people working on a single model um it, regression testing models is actually really tricky compared to like regression testing software stacks it's it can be done but it's like a lot of work and it, it requires a lot of diligence in like having processes to really carefully make sure that every aspect of, that the, the model is supposed to generalize to is never broken. And often it just requires like testing the whole thing like from scratch, right? As opposed to breaking it up into small pieces of testing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, modularity is one approach, but that's also something that in deep learning, kind of one of the strengths of deep learning in general has been the less module you are, the more end-to-end -end you are the better things seem to work. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a bit of a conflict there. Right. I don't I don't think you can modulize reality and which is the unfortunate yeah. truth. Yeah. And then uh, just to touch on the, your latest blog post, this is from like a couple of weeks ago, um, and also relates a lot to BCZ and a lot of stuff that's been going on in AI in general these past couple of years. Uh, so you wrote to understand that language is to understand generalization. And as you said before, you know, you believed in video, now you're maybe bigger on uh, linguistic and semantics and so on. So yeah, what what is your current thinking on, on this idea? The, the, the basic gist of this like blog post is arguing that, you know, when we when we try to define what generalization means, the the ontology of like generalization and all the aspects of things we want to see in ML models that generalize are completely equivalent to the structure of language itself. 
So for example, one form of generalization that we saw in the BCZ work was like composing, mixing and matching like objects from different training splits and just kind of um, globbing them together in the same sentence, right? So you have one sentence that was put the bottle in the bowl and another sentence is um, put the uh, bottle in the tray and then, another and then another sentence was like, uh, you know, pick up the tray. Oh, I'm sorry, the, the put the bottle in the tray was composed from these two other sentences by, by mixing and matching components. That's like a, this kind of compositionality is something that we expect from language. And we also expect other things from language, like, uh, you know, in, um, you can substitute things and things are invariant, right? Like I can replace synonyms, like pick up the, um, you know, pick up the tea and put it into the, 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 um, the bowl might be the same thing as pick up the bottle if, if, if it's a tea bottle. So, so there's like, there's properties of language understanding that seem to be general across all domains. And if you step back and think about it, like that, that's obviously true because we're communicating in language right now, right? And I'm describing some sort of like visual motor thing to you, but I'm using language to describe it. So clearly there's some sort of isomorphism between the, the generalization that we expect to see at test time and that we're testing it on. And then like the properties of language that I'm using to describe the task. So, so if you believe this kind of conjecture that like language models not only capture the kind of syntax of language, but they also capture the semantics of language. And now I'm kind of getting a little hand wave here because it's all linguistic stuff. Like um, if, you, if you believe that they capture the semantics of language, they might also capture the semantics of generalization itself, which is that language models might understand what it means for compositionality to happen, even in nonverbal domains, such as, you know, like uh, helping an image classifier generalize or something. Mm, yeah. And, I think this is interesting because, of course, language is a broad term. You know, programming languages are also languages and they're, um, you know, um, compositional and so on as well. But obviously, they're, they don't have the power of natural language where we can describe very kind of, we can be, play fast and loose <laughs> in a sense and somehow describe vaguely things uh, and, and just interpret that. And I think that's part of the power is, you know, you could argue that, you know, there's visual language as well. You know, you can have CAD programs where you have a language of objects in 3D space, et cetera. But I guess it sounds like the idea is in a sense, you can translate between verbal language and, you know, visual spaces. You can say the apple behind the bottle and you can imagine that in your head as the image. Uh, and you, know, you can say, pick up the bottle and you can imagine the motion and so on. So because you're so good at learning language and machine learning models, maybe that's a, a kind of the underlying mechanism for even other stuff, right? That's right. And also when, you know, I think there's a whole grab bag of capabilities people like uh, wish for when they talk about ML models that generalize, right? Like, you know, causality, um, and what else is there? Like, they also want to like make sure models understand like, um, yeah, causality is often like a big one, but like explainability, uh, you know, uncertainty, like all of these things kind of have these, their own mathematical formulations of it. But if you kind of step back and think about how humans casually reason about these things, we do it in a very like linguistically fuzzy way, right? So like we use, you know, we don't understand causality the way that kind of structural causal models work. We use like kind of casual language to describe causality and that's why language models have some inkling that like you know they can do some basic pattern matching on like causal type questions and 
um, maybe that kind of fuzzy understanding is all you need for like a sufficient level of ge generalization in your non-linguistic systems. So, so perhaps we don't need, we don't need like uh, our robots to have explicit dynamics models of the future. All they need to do is have like a, a dynamics model in, in text space because that's what humans might have, right? And that, that might be good enough. Mm, yeah, yeah. I also found it really interesting uh, in this blog post, I think, or maybe, I think, yeah, in this blog post, you made this point that there's some people who argue that, you know, language is basically the basis of thinking as well. Like, you know, personally, and I think for many people, when you're thinking, you're hearing words in your head, you know. Uh, so that's also quite interesting to think that, you know, just reasoning and, and human, you know, understanding of the world is inherently tied to language. And, and in that sense, it makes a lot of sense to then say, well, then language will have to be the underlying mechanism of any general purpose AI as well. Yeah. If you believe in linguistic relativity, which is that like language is thought or is the precursor of thought or is like certain your thought is constrained by your language, that means that you definitely, if you want your robots to think in the future, they must have like the ability to kind of linguistically reason to themselves at least, if not to like a counterparty. Yeah, if you want to have some sort of notion of common sense uh, or, I don't know, yeah, essentially reasoning through things, you can't just learn, you know, um, how to move in the world. <laughs> you need to also reason about concepts. And the way we do that is language. So I think it's, it's a pretty promising concept. Uh, and, and you have also this idea of, like, uh, bolting on understanding of language to robotics and vision uh, in an interesting way, which I haven't heard about, but does seem like kind of a direction that might be interesting. And, and this is just, it's not like my own work. I'm just really inspired by some like recent papers that I read. So, so I can name a few off for readers who might be interested. The, the one that kind of was most exciting to me was the pre-trained language models are universal computations paper by uh, Kevin Liu and, and uh, others. Um, so, so the basic idea is you take a language model, large large language, I think they use GPT-2, but maybe, or, or three or something. I think it was GPT-2. And you freeze the weights and you just fine tune the uh, decoder and encoder embeddings. And, and they can repurpose language models to do vision tasks, to do um, you know, protein folding prediction tasks, to do kind of quite nonverbal things, right? And, and the, the, the results are very preliminary. And so I wouldn't, I I wouldn't say like, you know, it over-indexed on this result too much, but, um, there, there really seems to be these kind of like fundamental primitives that are generally reusable for other tasks um, already existing inside of language models. And there's other works by, um, by DeepMind, like the Frozen paper, which was also very cool, where it was a little bit less like kind of um, transferring to non-linguistic tasks. It was just transferring to other linguistic tasks. But again, it shows that like frozen language models have a remarkable amount of generalization capability that you can just bolt on to your new problems. Um, and so... If we kind of look to the long-term goals of like AI research, like maybe, maybe this kind of like linguistic linguistic capability is the key to like getting common sense and and generalization as humans understand it um, into our machine learning models. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, obviously there's a lot of challenge there, but uh, it's an interesting perspective, and I think 
yeah, it's it, it's a good read. I will link, of course, all these papers and these blog posts and readers. You can you can read them for yourselves. They're you know they're pretty uh, detailed, and there's a lot of more interesting things we can touch on. So yeah, I would recommend uh, taking a look at those. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. We talked for your research and also your your recent thinking, uh, which is informed by that research, I guess, to finish things off, uh, maybe what are you sort of moving uh, on to next? Uh, obviously, you're thinking a lot about generalization. Can you just give a little uh, sneak peek at uh, your current research interests and yeah, where you're heading to? Sure. I'll give two, two things that I'm um, pushing on personally. So one is um, I've I've I've, uh, I've I'm I'm a born again believer in sim to real, and so now I'm like trying to train cycle GANs and uh, studying if I can try to upload the BCZ setup into simulation so I can get get more statistically rigorous results. And the second thing I'm really interested in is um, decision transformers, which is a paper by my colleague Igor Mordach along with some collaborators at Berkeley. Uh, I think it's a very nice architecture, like you know, some sort of goal condition thing that can condition on many different trajectories and get very nice offline RL results. And so that's something I've been playing around with in, in this kind of holiday season. Yeah, <laughs> that's some fun stuff to get into over over holidays, right? Um, well, yeah, that was really interesting. I'm, I'm a big fan of this research and, you know, these blog posts, which I always enjoy reading. So uh, thank you again for joining us for this interview, Eric. Thanks. It was an honor. And just to close out, once again, this is the Gradient Podcast. Check out our associated magazine over at thegradient.pub and head to our Gradient Substack to subscribe to this podcast and also to our articles and newsletter. If you enjoyed the interview, please support us by sharing it, subscribing, reviewing it, uh, all the usual things. Uh, we'd really appreciate it, especially with feedback. is nice to know if we're doing things well. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in to our future episodes.